Hello again, amazing listeners. This week, we are excited to bring you something a bit different. We're talking to a disaster expert. What? When disaster strikes and the unthinkable happens, governments, businesses, and organizations turn to Alicia Johnson. Alicia is an emergency manager, community preparedness expert, and founder of the CEO of Two Lynchpin Road, and has served as an expert to NATO, built White House, recognized preparedness resources, and responded to countless disasters from wildfires to chemical spills to earthquakes and active shooters. We talked to Alicia before Mo traveled to Italy and witnessed the devastating impacts of climate change related flooding on our clients and friends in the Emilia-Romagna region, displacing thousands and shutting businesses and services down completely. Alicia's wisdom and experience would have been so helpful on the ground there. And let's face it, we have all survived a disaster in surviving the recent global pandemic. Listen for what Alicia advises for how we can come together when the shit really hits the fan. Imagine if work was actually good for people. Not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. This morning, we're here with Alicia. Mo, will you will you tell us a little bit? We just talked about Alicia's formal bio, probably in the beginning of this episode. But will you tell us how you met Alicia and what is she doing here? Yes, um, absolutely. I'm so excited, Alicia, to have you on the podcast. And May, always a pleasure to see you. And I'm really excited actually about today's topic and about having Alicia here because it's pretty different than what we often talk about. So Alicia, as you heard from her bio, is a specialist in emergency preparedness and organization. So we're going to learn a lot more about that um, and disaster resilience. And I met Alicia through a professional community that we're both involved in. You had just started your business not too long ago, and my ears totally perked up when I learned about what you do because we work with organizations that face like every organization does, their fair share of disasters. So I just loved your point of view, your pragmatic point of view about it all. And I thought this should be really interesting to talk about, especially in the business that we're in of making workplaces that are good for people. So um, so yeah, we met through a, a women's entrepreneurial network that we're part of associated with Rachel Rogers called The Most. Um, that's awesome. Alicia, will you explain what you do like we were in second grade, please? Sure. Like Mo said, my background is in emergency preparedness and emergency management. Um, and the way I explain that to my five-year-old son mm-hmm. is that I help protect the people and places that we care about. And so my job is to help make them more safe and um, more connected to each other so that they can survive any crisis that comes their way. I love that. Are we talking like all emergencies? We're already going off the rails, but we're talking about all emergencies, like building falls down. We're talking about threats and hazards. So things like tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, right? What 
often is called natural disasters. I don't refer to them as natural because there's nothing natural about what happens when those types of threats hit or types of hazards really hit um, an urban area or a community of any size. Mm -hmm. And then also talking about threats. Those are human caused. So that can be something like an active shooter or um, a chemical spill or, you know, something like that. That's not necessarily mother nature driven, but has an impact on a community and their safety. So it runs the gamut. Um, I don't do crisis PR. So like if you messed up something in your company, don't call me. <laughs> but if somebody well, else is not going to help you, good people. luck. I work with people who do that and I can right. recommend folks, but that's not really my my emphasis. Yeah, good. Lo- I love that. So you're not that you're not actually interested in the cleaning up of the mess that somebody makes, but you're interested in actually helping create. I love what I love what you just said around creating you know, safety and connection amidst a threat and a hazard. And I'm curious, would you consider the COVID-19 global pandemic? Does that fit into the category of threat or hazard? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's both. Um, And, you know, it's really well blended. It, it is, I mean, you, you got to go all the way back to the source and we're, I think there's still lots of um, debate about whether or not that was human caused or naturally occurring. Um, either way, pandemic completely falls into something that emergency managers do um, and have to work through. During the COVID-19 pandemic, I was the director of emergency management at the University of California, Berkeley, and helped to no. take their entire student, staff, and faculty to remote learning although we didn't technically close the campus because there's not a way to close it, we did move everyone to remote learning and to remote work as well, or most of the staff to remote work. Um, It was rough. It was rough, especially because at that time, my son was about 18 months old and almost two years old. And uh, there's no preschool. You know, when, when the world shuts down in Northern California, there's no preschool. And so you're literally taking your kid on the bike path learning to ride the strider all 70 hours a week with five masks on your mouth. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the, um, the, um, I'm the really incredible thing about all of this is that my son can ride a bike like nobody's business. He was great. So that, he, he took that threat and hazard and said, I'm going to make something. You young mothers, you got the strider bikes. My kids, my kids did not have the strider bikes. They had to learn with training wheels, which are, are let me just say a threat and a hazard. Yes. Amen. <laughs> so you guys, you 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 lucked out, man. I, I already have Strider bikes identified for if I ever have grandchildren because I think they're so amazing. But um, I love, yeah, I love what you're saying there. And I just was thinking as you're talking again. I'm already going off script, but I'm really struck by what you said because I was thinking about how I was thinking about you know take your child to work day. And I was thinking, this is like, <laughs> this is like the take your child to work decade. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Because like COVID-19, you know, Alicia, you weren't alone. We, right. Every client we know, in, including our own team, had children or elderly parents or some other family member that needed to be taken care of. And when work shut down, all of that had to become one life, one integrated, messy, imperfect life. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and that is, that's the ramification of disaster, whether yeah. that's COVID or mm-hmm. something else, that is what happens. Your life becomes messy as you are mm-hmm. experiencing it, both in the response, but mostly in the recovery. Right. Yeah. And, and we experience disasters as individuals, as families, as communities, as business owners, all of the roles that we play, we're experiencing that one event in different ways or and in ways that are very blended and hard, hard to separate, right? You can't mm-hmm. say, well, the, the emergency manager in me saw COVID in X way and the mom saw it in a different way. No, for I, I'm, I'm one in the same. And I think that was for me, one of the yeah. ramifications I learned in COVID mm-hmm. was that for a very long time, I, because of the nature of this work, tried to keep my family separate from my work because mm-hmm. there's a lot of trauma yeah. that goes yeah. into response um, <clears throat> response. And when COVID happened, I couldn't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. The only thing that stood between me and my family was a door. Mm. Hollow core. So, you know, not keeping out much sound. Um, <laughs> and, and all of a sudden you sort of realize like, oh, wait a minute. There isn't yeah. a separation here. We are all the same. And we, and I think that's one thing that, you know, when I talk to now private sector businesses, non-governmental organizations, even government organizations, the importance of them understanding how interconnected their workforce is, is really, truly how you start to really kind of untangle what is it that we do after a disaster? Why do we care? What's most important? And how do we make our work more more resilient, really, to to whatever's coming our way. Oh, I, lo- I love that. And there's actually something really powerful there that I want to come back to. So I want to put a pin in that because I'm noticing that I'm stuck on something. I'm snagged. And here's what I'm snagged on. I bet our listeners may tell me if you agree. I bet some of our listeners heard what Alicia did. And they said in their mind these words, well, I think my boss is a threat and a hazard. Mm-hmm. So she helped me deal with the threat and a hazard that is my boss. Mm-hmm. The answer to that, I think, is probably no. But I think it's really interesting to take that notion of what is a threat and hazard at work. And you're really dealing with the big disasters, which do affect all of us. And also, what do you think of that? I mean, uh, I've dealt with bosses who are threats and hazards. Mm. And my training as an emergency manager, 20 years in emergency management, did not make that any easier. Mm. But I think one of the things that whether you're the employee or you're the boss, one of the things that really helps is understanding that that we are there is a humanity element that we're all experiencing crisis on some level, right? Whether that's the wildfire that's coming towards you or even to your family that doesn't even live near you, right? You're in California, there's a wildfire in southern Colorado. You know somebody who lives there. You're going to be you're it's going to raise yeah. your stress whether you're the person, you know, the the boss or the colleague or um, something, right? There's there's always something hidden underneath the surface. And that's just human nature. Disaster exacerbates that. It makes it way worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I mean, I wish I could help with the, my boss is a hazard or a threat. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I had, I had like a personal capacity to, to do that and also to understand how to, how to deal with that. I will say that I've seen a lot of first responders really deal with that over time because the first responder work is really, really tough. 
It's tough yeah. mentally, it's tough physically, um, it's tough on our communities, it's tough on our families. I mean, probably not very good bosses come out of those three sectors, right? Fire, um, medical, law enforcement, and then tack on public health emergency management and a few others that kind of regularly deal with this kind of stuff. And it's it's tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it's so true. I mean, there's just so many layers of, of trauma and mental health and well-being issues. And we do work in those sectors. I have friends who work in those sectors and we know that it takes a real toll. And I, I'm, I'm getting encouraged by some of the increased support that's coming to practitioners in those sectors, but it's critical. I mean, when you think about what they have to deal with every day. Um, and it's long delayed. The support yeah. that you mentioned is long yeah. delayed. Long delayed and still nowhere near enough. In, no. in terms of what people are dealing with and carrying of, you know, residual trauma. And also they, they're still like, especially I hear this from some of the folks in our communities that it's particularly acute in more rural communities where, mm-hmm. you know, there is just so little support and maybe often not even access to mental health support. It's sort of, you know, you're encouraged. Uh, my cousin is a state, was a state trooper, is still a state trooper and, and talked about the stigma around mental health that you were encouraged to pursue mental health support. But then if you did, you were kind of put on a fake list that, you know, that connoted that you sort of were not strong enough to handle it. And, and so, and let me just say, I don't think, I think that, you know, bosses can be by employees can be perceived or can really be a threat and hazard. And so can coworkers and Mm -hmm. also bosses can experience others in their system higher up or elsewhere as threats and hazard. And, and I think that what your point is really a strong one, which is like that just goes into the mix of how we're experiencing a really bad thing that happens at work and that our resilience is going to be impacted by what we're already, you know, experiencing there. And so, so go, so thanks for that. And, and go back to this idea of like community, the interconnectedness communities, particularly, of course, the lens we look at all the time is the workplace. What, what do you see come out of disasters that is good after we go through them. Yeah, that's um, other than my son learning how to ride <laughs> uh, with amazing depth. Um, I, I think, you know, that's a little flippant, but it's actually a really great example that there is an element that comes out of disaster that that breeds resilience as an individual. I can do this. I've mm-hmm. done this before. I've seen it. It feels similar. Yeah, there is a trauma response that comes up where you're like, ooh, I smell smoke. And the last time I smelled smoke, this you know, there's a trigger. But I know what to do. Uh, I have I feel familiar in, in how to respond. After an event, what you typically see is kind of a, a, is a coming together, right? Mm-hmm. Is a, uh, we're stronger because of X and we're gonna do our best to push through whatever that is. You also see a falling apart. Hmm. And, and some of that is because people who, um, you know, are waiting for insurance settlements, perhaps they are underinsured and that insurance takes a while to get to you. So they can't rebuild. So they leave their 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 community. Um, you may see businesses close because businesses notoriously do not have more than uh, two weeks of capital available to them. And it takes longer than two weeks to recover from a disaster, especially if you're brick and mortar and your building doesn't exist anymore, there's big problems, right? Um, sometimes insurance covers, sometimes it doesn't. It's based on your policy. So if you shortchange yourself as you're you know, walking through the process initially, you're going to get shortchanged in the recovery and that will in- impact your ability to recover as a whole. But mm-hmm. you see this sort of coming together and this falling apart. Um, a great example 
I live in Sonoma in Northern California. In 2017, Sonoma County was hit by the Tubbs fire, which was massive here, really huge. Uh, I distinctly remember this night. I remember smelling the smoke and waking up in the middle of the night and saying to my husband, we need to close all the doors and windows. And he said, well, it's really hot outside. We need airflow. And I said, there's a wildfire. We need to close it now. And so you know, we closed everything up. Uh, I looked at all the phones looking for messages, like tell us where this is. Nothing came. Fell into a restless sleep. The next morning, found out that part of Santa Rosa had burned to the ground and it had jumped six lane interstate. And, you know, I mean, it was out of control. And at that point, woke up and looked up at the hillside that I could see for front, from my front door, which was very smoky. I could see the flames from, you know, on the ridge. Uh, right near my home and uh, several miles away, but still visible. And I told my husband, you know, they're going to ask me to go. And when they ask you to evacuate, because they probably will, you just need to take the things we can't replace. And he was like, okay, I got it. You know, no worries, whatever. I gave him all the documentation um, for things. And I went and to an emergency operations center and did my job for, for a week. And then I went home. My house was still standing. And then I went back for another week and uh, continued to do my job. I was also, unbeknownst to me, pregnant with my son in my first trimester, which was a little bit stressful. And I didn't really understand what was happening to my body at the same time as we were going through this. And I thought it was all stress related. But I say all that to essentially say Sonoma came together. There was this big movement, Sonoma Strong, love is stronger than, this, you know, love is um, stronger than smoke and like all, all these types of quippy sayings. And you saw this kind of cohesiveness develop in the community throughout the county. Now we're five years after this event, five and a half years. You see the cohesiveness, but it's in fits and starts, mm -hmm. right? Some people are really cohesive, some people not as much. So you're definitely seeing this sort of like, oh, we came together, we we quote unquote fixed what we needed to do, we responded, and now we're we're kind of coming back apart. And I think that is a cycle that mm -hmm. you see after every disaster and every event. Every major event in the United States and really across the world, you can point to this sort of cohesiveness of coming together and then the, the easing of, of, of that togetherness. Yeah, it's interesting because we talk a lot about vulnerability and courage in our work and how they're related. And I'm struck with this idea that, and it's certainly been true for me in the in the limited number of disasters that I've been part of, where there's that vulnerability in a disaster that does create high trust, even with total strangers, because yeah, you're, like, you're all I've got. You know, we are all each other. I've never met before yeah. and have not seen since. Yeah. I was working literally right next to them at midnight issuing evacuation orders. And we yeah. were doing it as if we had always done it together because right. we had one mission in mind. So powerful. And I think organizations like we see organizations that would like wish for that in their day to day operations, that kind of interdependency. But to your point, it doesn't it doesn't last forever without constant reinvigoration, reconnection. And of course, in, the, in a disaster, there's the natural going back to the order of things, um, business as usual, uh, that impacts like the maintenance of it. But I think when I, when I put on that lens of like the workplace, I'm struck with how there's a lot to be learned for employers to be thinking through like, what are the conditions that I want to create that allow me to help my team maintain that vulnerability-based trust without having to have it be a disaster, 
you know, um, so that they feel that that beautiful, connected community feeling that we have after disaster, which, you know, even if it's temporary, it still can feel really good. I think it does feel really good. And I think that's also one of the things that emergency managers across the United States and the world really, really are also trying to crack because Mm -hmm. when you have a sense of togetherness, you are more prepared. Mm -hmm. You are ready for the next thing, whatever that is. And so that level of uh, cohesive teamwork is really important to the way we talk about preparedness, right? We want communities and neighborhoods to know each other so that when the, uh, Mm -hmm. the event comes, the disaster comes, you are like, oh, wait, Mo has a dog. We need to make sure she gets that dog out. May has a kid. Is that kid going to be okay? We need to figure out, is he at school? Is he here? This person down the road needs access, an access issue. She's in a motorized wheelchair. Does her wheelchair have enough power? Like there's certain things that you only get when you come together because that's when you know people and you know things about them. If you don't have that level of collaboration and bond, even in the workplace is a great example of this, right? You have a new person, you know nothing about them. Maybe they've been there for 10 years, but you don't talk. You've never had coffee with them. You know, you don't even know what they need when they need it. Mm -hmm. And that's such a huge part of response and resilience is being able to like, to come together and know that person, maybe not intimately, but well enough to say, I'm here to help you if this is what you need. Mm Mm-hmm. That's really funny. This is an aside, but my we live at the base of the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming, and we just got a ton of snow, like lots of places. And it just like never stopped snowing, it felt like. But that also means that our spring runoff is really intense. And we're just used to flooding. It happens all the time. But this one is projected to be pretty big, right? So we have like a neighborhood like filling sandbags day. And my husband is like notoriously uh, introverted. He's like, Mm -hmm. no. I do not want to go. Why do we have to do this? You know, like Saturday morning with our neighbors. And I'm like, because <laughs> when our neighborhood floods, I want them to know our faces. <laughs> you know, like I want them to come to our mailbox. <laughs> like this is important. So get in there and make some friends, you know, like forget the sandbags, make I mean, some you buds. Bring a, you bring up a great point when people are introverted or feel like they don't belong or that they don't connect in some way with the rest of the community, whether that's neighborhood or workplace, right? These are when they feel like they don't fit in some way, they're much less likely to be connected, to have like yeah. those, those networks. Right. Um, and that's so sad. I think we're, we're, we are, you know, if one thing starting a business has taught me, we are more connected than we think. Mm-hmm. And all you really have to do is just ask, hey, yeah. and be open. I'm doing this. I need this help. Does anybody need, like, I I work now with teams that I've never met in person, or I've met only once in person at a conference unrelated to our business. And um, they regularly call me and say, we want to partner on this project. Are you free? Mm-hmm. So all from me opening up and saying, I want to, I want to do this. Do you know anyone who knows anyone who knows anyone? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a key part of this is just being able to have that kind of collective bond that you get from spending time together Mm -hmm. and deeply understanding you have a need. I have a need. Mm -hmm. Mo has a need. We all have different types of needs. And you know what? If we combined our things together, we might actually be able to survive. Mm -hmm. 
and, mm-hmm. and more than that, thrive after a disaster. Yeah, I, I, um, I want to go, well, one of the things that's like really just hitting me in my chest is the take the things that you can't replace. In a meeting last week that I was having with um, one of our cohorts of leaders, we were talking about glass balls and rubber balls and that like you have these balls going all the time and that there's like ebbs and flows and work and like how much you have on your plate and how much you don't. And that the more you can keep the glass balls up, it's okay if a rubber ball drops, you know, like, but you have to decide what is a glass ball and what is a rubber ball um, first, you know? And I think your, your bit here about taking the things you can't replace is like, okay, for, if I'm a business leader, like what are the things I cannot replace? And by God, let's like put some muscle there because there is going to be a disaster um, at some point. And that, I guess that's my question to you is how do you personally keep your brain in a when the disaster happens instead of uh, it's coming, (laughs) you know, like, because I feel like one is more like one is more emergent and one is like, it's going to happen and I'm going to keep riding my freaking Strider bike, you know, like I'm going to just keep living my life right now. I think that's a really important trick. This kind of goes back to what Mo was talking about earlier about mental health. Um, I've been in emergency management for 20 years. I started therapy last year. I should have started it 20 years ago, but there is a stigma. Mm -hmm. We don't do that kind of thing here. You don't need it. It's okay. You're not fully in it. It's, you know, you're removed. It's whatever the justification is. Okay. Um, So that I think is a big part of this is understanding that there are some things that are glass Mm -hmm. and there are some things that are rubber and both of those things are not to be treated the same. You know, in your own home, things you can't replace, they're not things like toilet paper and underwear. Okay. Things you cannot replace are the the quilt your grandmother quilted for you when you were five. Mm -hmm. If that matters to you, you take it with you, Mm -hmm. right? Insurance for other things. You don't worry about those types of stuff. Yes, it still sucks. It's going to suck when you come back and those things are not there. Absolutely. It will be difficult. But Mm -hmm. that is not something that cannot be replaced. There's Mm -hmm. a difference. And I think in the workplace, as a leader, you have to make those types of decisions. And that might look different for the people who who are part of your team. Mm-hmm. might look different for your place if you have a retail location or something else. Um, it might look different to say, hey, if we're going to relocate our business, we need these things to make sure our processes continue to work. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. looking at those three P's, people, place and process and having those deeper conversations about what that looks like. I don't think unless you're a solopreneur, you can have these conversations alone. I think you have, if you have a team of any kind in your workplace, you have to have those conversations together. And that means that there might be a trigger warning on a staff meeting that says, hey, you know what? We're going to talk about this current event that has occurred in a neighboring community. And we want to talk about how we would handle it as a business. There's a lot of collaboration that takes place here. So like because of the pandemic, though, Mo and I do not have an office. So like one threat that's affecting Bend is not affecting Wyoming and the effect, the thing that's going on in Wyoming. So if, like, and then that just grows, I can imagine as like, you know, as there's more and more people. So if, if your entire group is hybrid or remote, you potentially could be having these conversations about threats 
and hazards that are like <laughs> in every single community, yeah. right? Because you're like, okay, everyone's having a hazard and a threat currently today. <laughs> like how do we, Orna, you know, or just may or like whatever. Um, so what, what's your advice to the business leader that's like looking out at their workforce and is like, oh no, somebody's flooding over there and somebody's got a wildfire over there and we also have to go to work. You know, so like- I think one of the really key things I had this conversation with with someone who's close to me recently about why I don't look at the news very often. <laughs> I can and imagine. He said to me, well, don't you need that for your job? And I was like, no, I don't actually. I mean, I know generally speaking what the threats and hazards are across the people that I work with. And I kind of know what's happening to them on, an, on any given day. But I was like, I don't need to know the inner story of what that is because that stresses me out and that makes it so I can't respond. Mm. So I I said, you know, the thing is, is that what I think people need to know, you can boil down to very, very simple things. Do you stay? Do you go? And then in certain other elements, do you run, hide or fight? Those are choices that you have to make. You have to know exactly what you're going to do in those situations. What happens, the cause of it is not irrelevant, but it's not as important as what your next action will be. You all are remote. You don't have a retail storefront, right? You don't have a brick and mortar. But what happens in your neighborhood, if there's a fire that runs through Mo's neighborhood in Bend, she's going to be evacuated. She's, you know, among her first calls, maybe not her first one, May, but among her first calls will be to you to say, hey, I'm out of my house. I'm in a hotel. Something really horrible has happened here. We still have to keep our business going. You still have to run this next cohort. I'm turning it over to you. And Mo, maybe you have a car full of gas, fingers crossed, right? More than half a tank. And you're headed over to uh, to Western Wyoming. That would be fun. I mean, not fun, <laughs> but you know. So, I don't know. I mean, there's ways to think about that. But again, that's that comes back to you cannot plan this stuff in a bubble. You, mm-hmm. If you are working as a team, you have to plan with the team, which means you have to have those open conversations, not just about what your threats and hazards are, which is where we started the conversation, but what you're going to do. Where do you go? How do you go? When do you go? If you have to stay, what does that look like? And all those types of, there's just some nuance there that needs to be navigated. And that does take time. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're, you're saying, you're all talk, I love this conversation because you're talking about you know, something you said earlier that really did sit with me quite deeply is this idea that um, when we are better connected or, you know, our sense of preparedness is enhanced by us being better connected. And I'm struck with your question, May, because I think that that is actually the reality for most of our clients, including our own business today, which is that they either have, they, you know, almost everybody has some dimension of remote team, but also we are impacted by disasters that are not happening in our community. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the things I see leaders wanting to deny. Um, that is that employees want them to begin to learn how to handle differently. You know, a good example is there's an atrocity, a violent crime committed against people who look like me. Let's say on race, I'm an Asian American, and there's an atrocity committed to someone who is Asian, or there's an incident of gun violence, or there is an earthquake that affects a lot of people or businesses that are adjacent to our space. Those may not be impacting this location, but they're definitely impacting, even if it's not in my business, it is going. it can be impacting certain groups of the population. You know, there's a, you know, a violent act for someone who identifies as trans 
And then, you know, that's 3,000 miles away and I'm trans and I'm in my community and I'm feeling the impact of that disaster, even though it's not my disaster. I'm not in that disaster. It's something I notice and care about possibly in a pretty different way than how my company may be rolling because they, they may not have even noticed that disaster. So I think that your point around, you know, we have to be talking about these things. We have to be noticing what is happening that could be impacting each other in community. Um, And the more we practice talking about those impacts and at least being able to be present for them and and be able to not deny their existence, you know, the easier it will be perhaps when something does come up that is a disaster in our own ranks that we have to deal with. Isn't this conversation with Alicia fascinating? We're struck by the key message that the time to prepare for a hard thing is before it happens. This includes building workplaces in which teams care about each other and leaders that are good for people. If you agree and you want some support for how you can make a difference, head over to our websites, either momentum.com or mocaric.com to join our weekly newsletter. It's full of inspiration, tips, and tools. If you think about how best you can show up to lead the people who are on your team, you might be ready for a streamlined approach to developing yourself or the people leaders on your team to be good for everyone on their team. Go to leadingpeopleprogram.com to learn more and apply now. Let's get back to the show. One of the things I really appreciate about communities like Rachel Rogers, Mo, is that Mm -hmm. there is a transparency about talking about earning power and money and how vital and important that is for women across the world right? What that brings to our conversation, the transparency around that, that's something that has not always existed. My wish for the 21st century is that that level of transparency comes to conversations about disasters, that there is more of a conversation about, hey, this is happening over here and it actually does impact me. Yeah. I am experiencing it. I'm removed. So I'm not deeply impacted, but I am experiencing it. And also, There's certain other elements that are playing out in our workforces, in our workplaces, um, in our own communities and our neighborhoods that we have to be conscious of as we start to talk about that. So many people, uh, including, you know, government emergency managers, private sector emergency managers are like, we can't talk about our work, our disasters. We can't talk about them because Mm -hmm. nobody wants to listen. We're afraid of doing it with fear. We don't want to hurt someone or traumatize them. We don't know how to talk about it. We're not, we're not transparent. Yeah. So then something really horrible happens and you hear emergency managers in the back room going, man, we knew that was going to come. We Mm. told them, nobody paid attention. Nobody acted. They didn't have the level of connection and resilience we wanted them to have. And we still don't know how to talk about it because we are sort of like, overwhelmed with, with the conversation about disaster. So I do, that is my wish for the 21st century. Yeah. Transparency to this conversation. Well, I love that. And part of that transparency, right, is noticing the little parts that could become a disaster, but aren't yet, you know, like I'm struck with, I used to work as a guide. I I think that, that being, being able to talk about a disaster is really important. And being part of being, well, part of what I hear you saying is that being ready means being more capable, more skilled at that transparency. And for me, that includes being able to notice the little things that could add up to disaster if we don't pay attention, becoming more fluent in that, which when I was a wilderness guide, when we used to debrief 
accidents that happened in the wilderness, a death, for example, there was always this, you know, it always sort of felt like it was a surprise, but it really isn't a surprise that the, that the accident very rarely was one singular thing that happened. It was usually a series of small but significant decisions that added up yes. to somebody having a disaster. And so what you're talking about is powerful in terms of like in the workplace, how, how are we going to talk about preventative strategies for the little things that will protect us in the event that something really bad does happen? Absolutely. I really thought you were going to talk about blisters. That's funny. I'm glad you didn't believe yet. Oh, well, there's another metaphor there too, but that's yeah. a whole different podcast. You know? Hot spot people, sit down, deal with your hot spot. <laughs> deal, with it. deal with it, which is kind of what we're saying is like, deal with it now, talk about it now. And which is yeah. what I like I've noticed when there have been, let's say, national disasters um, where people, leaders, I've had leaders who I've been in the room with, let's say during a training, when there's something that happens in another city. Usually it's an act of violence or it's a it's a natural, you know, uh, what you call a, a threat or a hazard elsewhere. And they may they may know like they may say, oh, boy, something bad happened in this town, uh, but it's not us. It's not now. So we better not mention it. And it's like, no, actually, how can you talk about that in a way that at least acknowledges that that may be impacting right. some people more than others? One mm -hmm. of my pet peeves is when people are like, we're going to ask for a moment of silence. Mm. I'm fine with a moment of silence, but then there should also be five minutes of conversation mm. about this, right? Where there is an opportunity to process because just closing your eyes and bowing your head is not enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So giving people a chance to practice. So build on that, if you would, about what, it, what are leaders' roles in disasters? Like I'm sure that you have, I'm sure in disaster preparedness, you have a whole system around how leadership plays out during the disaster itself. But what have you learned about leadership's role in disaster preparedness and response? Yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's a really good question. I think that leadership's role in disaster starts before. It starts during preparedness, mm -hmm. 100%, right? Because we've already talked about the, the need for transparency and regular conversation about what that is. And then I think the other part of that is that it, also is so incredibly tied to knowing your people mm. and and understanding one what's valuable to them and also what's valuable to your to your bottom line frankly right because if your business doesn't exist those people don't have jobs mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. important to them without that income you can't make you can't make your ends meet whether or not you're in a disaster or not right mm -hmm. so say the company headquarters experiences something but you live somewhere else and you're fine, but you still need income coming in, which means you still need to do your work. You still need to have your job. You're not getting the insurance settlement. You're mm -hmm. not getting any FEMA money of any kind, which, by the way, is pennies on the dollar. So just don't count on FEMA. But, um, <laughs> okay. you're, not, you're not getting that, right? But so so being able to have some level of continuity, is that's the word we use in the field. But the idea of being able to have some sort of consistent vision of what operations will look like if you have to close, if you have to pivot, if you mm -hmm. have to do a bunch of other things, that type of connection really does matter. And I think that level of understanding is really key into sort of having that deeper conversation. You know, if I were to point to one skill that leaders need to have, it's empathy. And, and even if they feel fear to go forward and do it anyway. This is a question for you, Mo. Because you just had a hazard and a threat not that long ago. Good old COVID-19. 
just so everybody knows, we did not talk about COVID-19 before it happened. There was no group think about that one. We had no idea what we were going to do. So what did it feel like, Mo, to like be the head of the spear and to make it up? This, this is a story I make up is that you made it up a little bit on, on the fly because you kind of had to. But from listening to Alicia, it's like, okay, we probably should have had conversations or we probably should have conversations about future ones. But what did it feel like to be alone at the at the front making it up at that point? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think for me, the part that I had visibility into that is probably true for most people that own a business is that I was, or especially a services business, is I was pretty aware of what was happening to my clients. And, you know, I wrote down what Alicia was saying around, you know, how important it is to have empathy and also that we're dealing with, you know, the capacity to deal with fear. Because what I noticed first off was like my client, at first we were all denying, including me, like, oh, this is no big deal, you know? And then, and then I, as it started to feel like, oh, this is actually a big deal, which for me was when clients started canceling, then is when my anxiety came up. But I felt like I had two jobs. I had, well, maybe three. One was I had to manage my own fear. Another was I had to help you, the team, be feeling more secure. And thirdly, I needed to help my clients who were just as clueless. And that was really interesting to me. And I'm sure you felt this, um, uh, both of you in your realms, which was that like, this is happening to everybody. This Mm -hmm. is not happening in one location. This Mm -hmm. is happening in all of our client locations, we did weekly support for our clients for like four or five months. And we had people coming from Europe and, you know, all over the place, South America, as well as in the U.S., because it was like we're all impacted by this in different ways, which was for me, that felt good after a little while. It started to feel good. It's like we're connected around a common thing. But I, I was aware to, you know, in response to your question, I was aware that I had to navigate my own fear first and in order to be more capable of handling everybody else's fear and anxiety. Mo, mm-hmm. if you had thought about it beforehand as a potential thing that could impact you, do you think you would have had less fear or more? Definitely less. Definitely less. If I, if I could have imagined what, you know, what COVID would have meant, there's many things that we did as a result of COVID, kind of like the Strider bike metaphor we said earlier, that would have been better for our business to do sooner, actually. So if we had had conversations about, for example, moving our business to more virtual support sooner, there might have been some really cool possibilities. And we would have been more ready when COVID happened than we were about mm-hmm. how to do this, you know, yeah. which would have helped us, you know, respond more quickly, be more financially solvent more quickly, all that stuff. That That's the purpose of disaster planning, right? That's that's. I love when I get to talk to people who are like, yeah, if I had thought about this ahead of time, I would have made some, not just some different decisions in the moment, but I would have made some different decisions in the planning process that would have actually benefited our bottom line and our ability to be, bounce back faster, right? To use the some of those other metaphors. And so I think that's a huge part of this process is just being able to sit down with the possibility. Mm-hmm. I remember coming back from, from Salt Lake City, Martin Luther King Day in 2020, and knowing that it was happening in Asia and having a conversation, I, I had bleach wipes, wiping everything down with my son. He was strapped to my chest. And I remember as he's strapped to my chest, you know, falling asleep, I was sending an email to my um, 
staff person at UC Berkeley saying to them, we need to get everyone, we need to get our policy group together because we have to have a conversation about what is happening in Asia. And Mm -hmm. she responded back to me. This was in like mid-January. She responded back to me with, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's something happening over here. We just finished Christmas break. There are lots of people coming back from Asia. Uh, we have professors over there. I don't know what it is, but I was like, I'm willing to bet if it's even slightly contagious, it will become a pandemic. Oh, it felt like that, though, didn't it? It felt well to like, obviously not to really, but like in my brain, I was like, I don't know. Weird. That's so weird. You know, like. It felt very like, let's wait and see kind of situation, you know, which they postponed the conversation for weeks. And then finally they were like, okay, so maybe we should have a brief about it. And, and I was like, okay, here's what you're looking at. It's getting worse. And I, you know, and I remember saying, I feel like such a Cassandra. I remember saying like, it's already here on the West coast. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, it isn't. And I was like, no, <laughs> It is. You just, you're not thinking you're, you're stuck in like this very small box of like, we can protect ourselves in a bubble, but Mm -hmm. you you can't. Mm -hmm. And the best protection is to talk about it then because you know, you can't protect yourself in the bubble. Mm -hmm. The longer you try to stay in the bubble, the more at risk you really are as an organization, as a leader, as you know, you're, you, you cannot protect yourself like that. That level of insular thinking is gone now. In the 20th okay. That, that's the quote of the, of the podcast. <laughs> right here, right? I mean, that, that true words have never been spoken, right? Yeah. You, you, yeah. Have, you know, um, you've got to more try to protect yourself by staying in a bubble, the worse you will fare. Yeah. when the shit goes down, you know? And yeah. I think I think that's so interesting to me in terms of some of the work we do, because I think as leaders, people often, leaders often want to protect people yes. from the bad thing that could happen. And I know I had that instinct with COVID. Like, I just, I don't want my staff to feel the feelings I'm feeling. But on the other hand, they were critical. I needed my staff to be rowing in the boat with me and how could they row in the boat with me as hard as I needed them to row if it if they didn't know it was a crisis <laughs> like I know I think they were already feeling it yeah, yeah. even though yeah. you didn't say it out loud they already knew yes. yeah yeah which makes it more intense doesn't it if you're like okay I smell smoke and everybody's like no fire right. no fire it's fine everything's fine like that just enhances all the anxiety or made the, the flip of that right where the leader is like I smell smoke but I'm not going to tell anyone I smell it yeah, I'm going to protect them. And, th- and then we will, we will all be fine. And yeah. yet every other employee is like, do you smell smoke? I smell smoke. Did it? What, why isn't the person in charge telling us to leave? Like, yeah. should we be talking about it? No, right. like the rumors under the, under the table are all like, I smell it. You smell it. Yeah, we smell well, it. Yeah. We should say something. We smell it. Like, it's for real. Well, so here's something you could use in your work, because it says it's some language that we've landed on with some help of our brilliant clients, which is this idea that leadership in those situations becomes not an umbrella to protect people from what's raining down on them, but a filter mm. to translate what's happening in a way that people can make sense of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think about this whenever I watch that video, when you get on the plane and they have the video about like, follow the lights mm-hmm. to, the, to get out of the plane. But sometimes I love that they say, but sometimes they will look like they're going in the wrong direction. 
basically. They're like, notice lights may look to you like they're moving away from the door, but follow the lights anyway. And I always notice that because if heaven forbid that ever happens to me, I'm going to, I'm going to, in my mind, I'll be like, follow the lights, follow the lights. Like someone told me, especially because it's not what I might expect in that Mm -hmm. moment. It's going to be moving me away from what I think is the exit. So I just think that there's so much to be learned there around what is the role that leaders can play in in the preparedness. Um, And so so we need to move to closure. But I'm curious, in your work today, how far ahead do you like to work with organizations to be thinking about disaster preparedness? You know, because we can't be constantly preparing for every possible eventuality. But like, what's the right, I mean, obviously the best time to do disaster preparedness is not when you're in a disaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, my, the, never truer words there, Mo. Yeah. Um, number one. I, they're pretty smart, but you know. That's, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my favorite time actually to work with people is right after mm-hmm. when the sting is still yeah. a little real yeah. because, and, the, and the guard is down a little bit. Because then you really get into some of those really good conversations about what did you do and what really worked and why did it work? Because Mm -hmm. then we can craft this sort of customized element using your own culture that you've already built in a time of of normalcy and Mm -hmm. amplify that. And, and really leverage that to get solid preparedness. Now, yeah. I mean, depending on where you live, you might be experiencing a whole range of different hazards. If you're uh, in the Southeast, you're about to enter into hurricane season. And if you are on the West Coast, you are about to enter into wildfires. Those, um, you know, right before the season starts is a good time to have those types of initial conversations. Um, and develop, you know, a training schedule that could be as simple as every other staff meeting. We're going to take 10 minutes and just talk about crisis and disaster, make ourselves a little more comfortable, right? Yeah. Uh, it could be quarterly, we're going to do a training or we're going to run um, our call tree or we're, you know, we're going to talk about how we would communicate with one another. Do we have pre-crafted messages? There's lots of small steps you can take that make you more prepared at the end, but I, I think in terms of timing, you 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 want to go before the event, obviously, and before you start to feel the pressure of the the season, right? Whatever that event season is, yeah. It, the time to talk about hurricane preparedness is not when there's a storm forming in the Gulf, right? Mm-hmm. It's when you it, the time to talk about it is when you know the season is coming up, but there's no threat, no active threat, so that you're not planning under the state of fear. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're planning under the state of calmness. Yeah, powerful. A lot, a lot there that can be applied to, you know, not necessarily big threats and hazards, but like day-to-day planning, but also obviously the big threats and hazards. And I think what you said about doing some of that work after something has happened when people are in recovery is a really powerful time because you do still have a little bit of that visceral awareness. Don't want to do that again. You know, what will we do differently next time? And even if you never have another disaster of that nature, you're going to be more ready, you know, to cope with it. Yeah. Um, yeah it's not, but, it's not yeah. about planning for the specific cause ever. Right. right? So mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need an earthquake plan, a tsunami plan, a wildfire plan. Yeah. Some of your responses will be different evacuation will look different. How do you shelter in place? How do you drop cover and hold on? Those types of things. But as a business, your reaction is probably going to be really similar for every single one of those things, only if you work it out ahead of time. 
These are yeah. the strings we need to pull. These are the protocols that matter. This is how we're going to notify our staff. The message you send might be different, but you're still going to notify your staff and you still need to know who will do it, when will they do it, and how will they do it. Alicia, I, I'm a big Grey's Anatomy fan uh, and hang with me. <laughs> there, there's like... <laughs> Always. Like, I'm not, but okay. <laughs> it's okay. They're pretty much I all you need to know. I do know <laughs> Pretty much all you need to know about the entire show is that everything is a threat and a hazard, and everybody has some object that's stuck in their body. But, anyways, wait, are you sure you're not talking about New Amsterdam? Yeah. Like no. the same plot line. Also, that one. Yeah. So they're the same. So, anyways, so. They just had this major one where like this big thing happened and everybody like needed to be prepared and by there's a storm and whatever. But they one of the like cruxes of that episode was that the preparedness book was like so it was like three feet large, you know, and the person in charge was like, hold on, I have to read the book real quick before we like decide what to do with this storm that's happening outside. So this leads me to ask, like, how much of it is? Yes, we are prepared like with the nuts and bolts and how much of it is like we have built a culture that is ready for this kind of thing because we trust each other to just make the call because it seems unlikely that you would read the book in the moment. You you won't. <laughs> uh, you won't read the book in the moment. No one ever does. Uh, no one really reads the book to begin with. Great. Um, the book is called Shelf Art for <laughs> on the shelf and it looks nice and that's all. Um it's like one of those books that you probably like open it up and the paper disintegrates in your hands because it's so old. Mm -hmm. um, uh, at one time when I was in university, had an opportunity to, to work with one of the vice mayors who was at the Oklahoma City bombing. Wow. And he was in City Hall whose windows were blown out by the explosion at the, at the Murrah building. And he said he got up from underneath his desk and where was his emergency plan? All over the room. Cool. The binder had fallen off and was like everywhere. He was like, all of a sudden I realized I did not know what I was supposed to do because it was so written down and it was so mm. obtuse mm. and not at all tactical mm. in the next steps in the checklists that I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And for me, the, the goal of Two Lynchman Road is to cross that chasm, right? Mm. To go from 300 page plans that are five pounds to 30 page plans that you can carry in the back of your pocket or put in your go bag or wherever you're going to carry it. And you know, automatically, the very first thing I do is this mm -hmm. the very first five things yeah. I do is this, that to back to answer your question is 98% culture, mm -hmm. right? 2% planning, maybe 95, five. I don't know what the ratio is. <laughs> mostly a little we got it <laughs> but yeah. it's mostly culture yes it's mostly we build we are people who do this yeah and that's why we prepare we know we're going to experience it but we're people who want to be able to come through the other side with great ability to rise yes and so we do this work ahead of time mm -hmm. end of conversation it doesn't matter you oh. you you could probably never write it down and be a thousand times better just by embracing that level of culture and resilience. Oh, I love that. That thank you for that infomercial, right? It's 98% <laughs> culture, 2%, you know, the, the uh, my son has been teaching me about how to make commercials. So oh, I can tell good job. I love it. Well, the thing that struck me is that the words that I was thinking about is that we know it in our bones. 
we know it in our bones. And I, I often think about, you know, I've done a lot of adventuring, adventure sports, sailing across oceans and I, and I, you know, climbing mountains and all that. And I know that part of my, what I recall from those days and I, they, it is still with me. I still have that in me today, even though I don't do the high risk adventures as often as I once did. But I'm pretty confident that if the three of us found ourselves on a boat in the North Pacific in oh, hurricane, so I would know what to do. And, but I wouldn't know it because I had it written down. I know it in my bones. And we would be dropping a sea anchor and we would be dropping sail and we would be tethering ourselves to the boat and we would we would do it because I know how to do it in my bones. And the reason I know that is because I did it a lot when the yeah. weather was good. And the thing I would add is that Alicia and I, hopefully because of the culture that we'd built on that boat in that storm, would know to ask you, right? Like, okay, we're here and we've got whatever skill we got. So, and the culture is that we trust each other and like grab a freaking bucket or whatever you do, you know, I don't know. So I think that's like, there is the person that has done it, done it, done it, done it, done it, planned for it, like is there and ready for it. And then there's the people that are like, and I'm not bailing because I'm, I, our culture is that this is the way we do it here is that we're in it together. Grab a person, let's go for it, you know? Right. I think that both of those are key because if you got one person who's like, I know how to ride a boat and everybody else is like, nope. <laughs> well, and or to be able to say that this person is now the one who we're going to take direction from. Totally. I'm about this, the people, you know, a lot of people are concerned about there's some generational differences right now around authority. And I had a leader recently say to me, you know, Mo, people don't want to take direction anymore. And, and I'm like, really? I don't think that I don't think that's true. I think people crave direction. What does it take for us as leaders? We've got to be capable of giving direction in such a way that people can hear it. Mm-hmm. But when they do, then they're going to be ready in a disaster. You know, so I think yeah. the other part of that is that the direction may not come from the quote unquote leader. Yes. Yeah. Right? So right. Mo, it might be my sailboat, Mo, but you right. know how to do it. Not mm-hmm. me, <laughs> right? I might be the designated leader, but I'm not the most I'm not the most appropriate person to lead the company into recovery or disaster yeah. response or whatever that looks like. Yeah. So I think there is a certain level of understanding who is most prepared and why and yeah. most qualified for that conversation to lead that conversation and continue those conversations throughout the tenure and being able as a leader to step back Yes. which is incredibly difficult yeah. and say, no, I'm in a place of learning. And that there's no shame. There's yes, no there's shame no in shame. not we being the one. Yeah. We don't and know. We, there was not a living memory of another world pandemic like COVID, hmm. right? That happened in 1917, 18. There were other things, right? We had other pandemics that were spreading across the world, but not with that level of mm-hmm. um, Ebola was one of those things. I'm uh, H1N1. We've we've experienced some level of that level of that knowledge, but not on that scale. Mm-hmm. So no, you can't expect people to, you have to be able to say, this is new. We're seeing something that's new and we don't know how to deal with it. We have some historical knowledge. We have some functional knowledge based on other things we've done um, and other things we've seen like SARS and, uh, but, w- but we're not experts in this thing because it's new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, I think there's so much there. Like we as leaders are like paid to know, you know, and problem yeah. solve and be able to do the thing and have the answer. And there's a lot of power in being the person that can just say like, we've never seen it before. 
anybody got any ideas? You know, I was just talking to the to the um, superintendent of Yellowstone about the flooding and that they did like a community poll about how they were going to get people back into the park. And um, that like some old guy just like wrote into the email and was like, well, when we had to ration gas, we did this. Maybe that's an idea. And some of the people were like, that is a no, that idea is terrible. And that a whole bunch of people were like, I don't know, let's try it. And they did. And it turned out to be amazing. You know, like it turned out to be the best way. And maybe they're going to continue to keep doing it because it helped the outer communities of the Yellowstone National Park. You know, so it's like, I think that right there is like the superintendent didn't have to have that answer. Let's write the little guy who knows the answer. Well, yeah, and some of that is because they hopefully their culture knew in their bones that we ask for help and we and we and we take it. Yeah, you right. Know? We're gonna believe you. Yeah, yeah. We ask for help and we take it. We're gonna believe you when you have an idea. We're gonna try it. Yeah, it's both self awareness and yeah. organizational awareness. Yeah. yeah, you may or may not know the answer, and other people around you may or may not know. I think the other really good point of the Yellowstone example, May, is that that. The answer didn't come from even inside the park. It came from somewhere else outside the community, you know, in the community, not in the organization. Right. And I think that is one thing we need to look for solutions everywhere, yeah. not just in the places that we are in immediately. Speaking of solutions of the community, Alicia, will you tell our community how they can support you, your work? And yeah. will you be very specific? Um, absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Alicia D. Johnson is my my handle there. And I post three times a week. Um, and I'd love to to connect with folks there. And then I also have a newsletter called Ready for Anything. Yes. Uh, you can get on that on my website, which is twolinchpinroad.com. Feels like we should all be on that newsletter. It's a quick read. Twice a month. It's, it's like a three minute read. And it's just, you know, a good way to sort of um, touch on some of the disaster components. And, and I'm always, of course, asking for feedback and, and receiving that from folks who are on the newsletter as well. So happy to have people join the newsletter and join the conversation. Yeah. Alicia, it's been a delight. Thank, Thank you. you. So good. So good. So many good ideas, um, both for disasters and also for just regular how we do what yeah. we do, you know, so that we're ready and and build communities that are resilient. Um, thank you both for such a great, engaging conversation. Bye. Bye.